Do you want to unleash your inner power and heal your past wounds? Do you want to learn the secrets of Celtic wisdom and magic? Do you want to transform your life and align with your true purpose? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you need to listen to Practically Magic, the podcast that shows you how to use ancient healing in a modern way. Join me, Courtney Earle, a self-proclaimed witch, healer, and Celtic priestess, and let me guide you through the dark cauldron of your subconscious and help you emerge with a new vision of yourself. Practically Magic is more than just a podcast. It is a journey of self-discovery and empowerment. Tune in every week and get ready to experience massive healing, balance, and peace for your soul and body. Listen on Ride the Wave Media. Hey, it's just Blaine and Bex here with the best podcast in Utah. That's right. It's Radio Daybreak, a show highlighting the people, businesses, and events that make Daybreak, Salt Lake City, and Utah one of the most majestic places around. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode of the best podcast in Utah, Radio Daybreak. The following presentation is a production of Ride the Wave Media. Hey, heathens. Welcome to Vibing the Apocalypse. I'm your host, the Fresh King Benjamin, and this is the inaugural episode. I want to introduce myself. I want to introduce this podcast, give you a sense of what we're going to be doing here. So this podcast is based on a very simple premise that we are on day 1,400 of the apocalypse. The apocalypse happened. It happened back in 2020. Maybe you remember that. It was a big day. We all went home. We stayed home for like months, and then all kinds of crazy shit happened. There were aliens. There were murder hornets. Australia was on fire, and it hasn't really ever stopped. And so this podcast is based on the idea that the apocalypse isn't something that happens one time. It's not like a big thing that happens, and then the next day things are different. It's more based on the idea that the apocalypse is a slow decline, a slow slide into the breaking of the old world and the rebuilding of the new world. And I'm a unique person, uniquely qualified, let's say, to talk about the apocalypse because I am the prophet of, apocaly- of an apocalyptic religion. And I didn't ask to become prophet. That was sort of on accident, but it was the, it's a calling that I've now fully accepted. And I want to tell you a little bit about why I say that and how I, how I became prophet of the apocalypse. And then we're going to get into, then we're going to get into this, this series. And I'm really excited because I think that we are at a very unique and interesting and scary and hopeful and horrifying and beautiful time in human history because the old world is breaking. The thing that I think about is if if you've ever seen like an image or a video of an avalanche, right? There's this huge set of all this snow up on a mountain. And then there's this moment where it breaks and you can see it sort of drop and then it floods down. I, I, I say that the, that break for us was March 15th of 2020. That's the day in the United States when they announced COVID, where they sent everyone home and where the entire world sort of changed drastically, right? There was a moment where all of our collective worlds broke together and everything since then has just been that slide into chaos. And there's a lot to be scared of in an apocalypse because the world is ending, right? The old world is falling apart. And I think if you've spent any time paying attention to what's been happening in the world over the last three years, that that is the case, right? We have wars all over the world. The climate is in, in tatters. We have crazy weather events. We have riots. 
We are potentially running out of, we're having shortages of food. We're having shortages of materials. It's a scary time. It's also a really hopeful time because part of what happens in an apocalypse is that the old world that we constructed together, because we live in constructed world, we together as a human community, we create these sort of imagined and fictitious worlds that we live in, like the United States, like the global world. And when that world breaks, there's an opportunity to rebuild it. And that to me is a great opportunity because I think that if anyone who looks at our old world, the world of just three years ago, and is objective about how it treated all of the people in, the, in it, would say that there were some pretty shitty things. Right? There were some things about that old world that definitely don't deserve to make it into the new world. And in this podcast, I want to have lots of conversations with lots of different people from all different walks of life to explore what parts of the old world do we want to leave behind? What parts of the old world do we want to take into the new world? And what are the new things that we want to build in the world as we, as we get into it? And I think that I'm uniquely qualified to have this conversation. And in order to demonstrate that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. My name is Ben. I grew up on a Mormon polygamous compound in Wyoming. My family has been part of the Mormon cult for almost 200 years. My ancestor joined it in 1835. And I have to give you a little bit of context, a little history lesson here about Mormonism for you to really understand my perspective and my view on the world so that we can have this conversation together. So my, like I said, my ancestor joined the Mormon cult in uh, 1835. His name was Ebenezer Brown. He was a first-generation immigrant from Scotland. And he got swept up. There were tons of cults getting started in the early 1800s in America. It was Cult Central. That's when Seventh-day Seventh Adventist starts. Oneida uh, cult that ultimately is just silverware now. The Mormon cult. All of these different cults get started. And my ancestor got swept up into the, into the Mormon cult. And Mormonism was interesting for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons that Mormonism was interesting was that their founder, Joseph Smith, made a couple of really audacious claims. He claimed that uh, God and Jesus had appeared to him in a grove of trees. He claimed that an angel had come and delivered golden plates to him, and that from those golden plates, he had translated, translated <laughs> a book of scripture called the Book of Mormon. And the way that he did that is that he had a seer stone. And I don't know if you guys know what a seer stone is, but it's just a rock. I have one right here. It's just like this. It's like a little simple rock. And uh, he had this rock, and he would take it, and he would put it in his hand like this. And then he would put his face in the hat like this. And then the words of the, of, the, of the Book of Mormon would appear on the rock and he would dictate them to a scribe. And that's how the Book of Mormon got, was written. That was not how most Mormons today, most Mormons today and most Mormons throughout history, that's not how that was explained to them. They were told that it was like this beautiful, miraculous thing, not that it was essentially a long con. No one ever saw the plates. In fact, Joseph Smith, uh, <laughs> he... <laughs> he was he was very much very much a, a con man, and ultimately, what he did is he used that he used his kind of spiritual power. He used his ability to weave a spiritual narrative to create a a, a cult that allowed him to profit monetarily, that allowed him to get a lot of power, and that also allowed him to introduce something uh, called polygamy, where he would basically tell people, other men's wives, single women teenagers often that they were supposed to, that God had given them to him as his spiritual wives. And that's where you get the origins of Mormon polygamy. And that's really relevant to me in my life because I grew up as part of one of the offshoots of Mormonism that has Mormon polygamy. Because what happened is that after Joseph Smith died, his cult 
When he died, his cult was about 20,000 members or about 20,000 members in a place called Nauvoo, Illinois. And when he died, most of that group, most of that group went and followed a man named Brigham Young out into Utah, into the deserts of Utah to start Salt Lake City and the, the state of Utah, which is predominantly Mormon now and is mostly controlled by the, the Mormon church or the LDS church as they like to be called now. But it's important to understand that there's a difference between LDS and Mormon, right? So LDS is one sect of Mormonism and Mormonism is the whole umbrella that kind of encompasses all of it. And there are hundreds of different sects of Mormonism and they all trace their origins back to Joseph Smith. And one of the things that was interesting about my family history is that my family has been part of this. Like I said, in 1835, my ancestor Ebenezer, he joins the Mormon church. When polygamy becomes uh, mainstream in the LDS church in like the 1850s, 1860s, my ancestor Ebenezer Brown takes a couple of wives. He ends up having 25 kids. I think he has three wives or something. And his son also has a bunch of kids, also has a bunch of wives. His son, same thing. And then around the 1890s, there's a big split in Mormonism where the, there's, there's a big push for Utah to become a state, but the, but the, the federal government is pretty leery of this very, very powerful theocratic organization, the LDS church that's been created in Utah. And so they're not, they're not super keen on letting Utah become a state because they're worried that this, that this cult will basically dominate that state. And so they, they basically make a couple of requirements in order for Utah to become a state. And one of those requirements is that, is that the Mormon church has to abandon polygamy. And in 1890, the prophet at the time, his name is Wilford Woodruff, he, uh, he issues what's called the manifesto. And the manifesto is basically the, them saying, hey, we used to practice polygamy. We're not going to anymore. We're done. And they still did it in secret for about another 30 years until about 18 or 1914 when they, when another prophet, his name was Joseph F. Smith, he was like, seriously, guys, we're done. We're not, we're not doing this polygamy thing anymore. And when that happened, there was a big split in Mormonism because some people, a whole bunch of the leaders, members of the quorum of the 12 really prominent members of the, of the LDS church, they were like, look, we can't abandon this true principle. Because all of the prophets going back to Joseph Smith had taught that this was essential for exaltation, that in order to get into the tippity-tippity-tippity top of Mormon heaven, you had to have multiple wives. That was a requirement. And how could you just, just because of the persecutions of the wicked world, how could you go back and deny what God has given us? How could you do that, you weak, weak people? And so a big group of them didn't. They left, they split off, and there was, a, there was a, a, a battle about who was in charge, right? Who is, who has the true claim to be the heirs of Joseph Smith? And this is important. This is one of the ways that you know that Mormonism is a cult is that it, ha it relies on a single leader, right? And this is based in their doctrine and their scripture. And really in the way that Joseph Smith set it up is that there's only one person that can talk directly to God that is authorized to talk to God. So everybody gets to pray and connect with God and have their own personal relationship with God. But you always have to check your personal relationship with the prophet's relationship because anything that the prophet says trumps what you personally believe. And so there's this battle over who is the authentic heir of Mormonism, who is the prophet of Mormonism. And that battle still continues today. There are a bunch of different candidates 
for profit in Mormonism. There's Russell M. Nelson. He's the leader of the LDS sect, which is the most powerful. It has, it claims about 14 million members. Actual numbers of active members is probably significantly lower. It has hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in assets. It's very, very powerful. It dominates the state of Utah. It dominates politics here. It's a really powerful organization, but it's not the only one. There's the FLDS church made famous by Warren Jeffs, who's the prophet of that sect. He's in jail right now for doing essentially exactly what Joseph Smith did, which was marrying teenage girls. And there are dozens of others. The sect that I grew up in was something called the AUB or the Apostolic United Brethren. It's the same sect that the Sister Wives family came from. Sister Wives family is actually my family. Shout out to Uncle Cody and all my aunts. And that prophet right now, his name is Dave Watson. I also claim to be a prophet of Mormonism, but I'm unique. I'm unique because I'm the only Mormon prophet who will tell you that Mormonism is made up. It's a hoax. It's made up. And we should, you know, it's fine that things are made up. I, I like lots of made up things. I think Lord of the Rings is fucking great. It's important when things are made up that we acknowledge them, right? It's if you got raised to believe that Star Trek was literal reality and that's abuse, right? That's lying. That's abusive. That's not a kind thing to do to a human. And that's essentially what's happening in Mormonism is that you have these audacious, these crazy, sometimes truth claims that are made like Joseph Smith translating <laughs> golden plates by looking at a rock in a hat that that aren't verified that you can't that don't stand up to scrutiny that aren't factually true right that are actually the opposite of that and and that's that's problematic that creates a lot of harm in the mormon world and that's something that i as the true mormon prophet i i renounce that i fight against that but true mormon prophet that's an audacious claim so let me let me back it up because i think i think i've got some evidence for it my family when that big split happened in the early 1900s my family went with the lds church so they stayed with the main, the, they call it the mainstream LDS church. And they were like, you know what? We're going to stick with, with these guys. And they were dedicated LDS members up until the 1980s. And the 1980s was a really interesting time in Mormon history because a lot of, a lot of old things were starting to come to light. So people were studying old texts. They were studying old talks by people like Brigham Young. Joseph Smith, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, some of these very early prophets. And when they studied these early texts, what they found was that there was a very large difference between the church as it existed then and what the early prophets said the church was supposed to be, right? There was this big disconnect. The early prophets, they were like, hey, you have to live polygamy in order to get into the celestial kingdom, which is the very top of Mormon heaven. The early prophets were like, hey, if you're black, sorry, you can't get into that celestial kingdom because you were unworthy in the pre-existence. The early prophets were like, hey, we need to live something called the United Order, which is basically local communism. And none of that stuff was happening in the LDS church in the 1980s. And so there's this disconnect. And my family is sort of stuck in the middle of that. My, my, my dad's parents and, and my dad and, and their family, they're in this space where they're starting to become aware of some of these differences, some of these, some of these inconsistencies in uh, LDS church policy and doctrine. And they decide to make a choice. They decide that the LDS church is not the true Mormon church and they have to find the true Mormon church. So they go on a quest. They go to a bunch of different, they go to a bunch of different organizations. They, they check out a bunch of different, they're called fundamentalist groups because they go, they go back to the fundamentals of Mormonism. And they eventually land 
at something called the AUB or the Apostolic United Brethren, which is a great name for a church, especially a church about polygamy, because it has brethren right in the name. Obviously, no women were involved in, in naming that church. Um, so my family, my dad's family joins that church. My dad joins that church. He's engaged to a woman at that, at that time who's also LDS. She joins that church as well. And at the time, my family, my parents, my dad and, and his uh, fiance, they feel like before they get married, they need to find another wife. They feel like they're called to live polygamy right now. And so before they do that, before they, before they get married, they're going to try and find another wife. And they do something that is a, a little bit deceptive, not even a little bit, super deceptive. They pretend to be members of the LDS church, to still be active members of the LDS church. And they go down to college. My dad is like 25 at this point. His fiance, I think is 24. They go to college. They pretend they go to a singles ward in Logan, Utah. And they, they, my dad represents himself as a single man, which is not cool. And there he meets my mom. My mom is 19. She is, she's LDS. She's again, she's a, and she's in a similar stock, right? Her family had come across the plains with the saints as well. Her family had been LDS for, uh, again, hundreds of years. And she'd been raised to believe, like many members of the LDS church in the 80s, they, she'd been raised to believe that eventually polygamy was going to come back, that either we were going to live polygamy in the millennium, which is like Mormonism believes that there's, Mormonism is an apocalyptic religion, right? Joseph Smith preached that Jesus Christ was coming back probably tomorrow, and they've been expecting him ever since. And one of the things that Mormons believed in the 80s is that probably what was going to happen is that there was going to be a big apocalypse. The world was going to end. There was going to be calamities, devastations, wars, all this kind of stuff. And then after that, there would be a period called the millennium. And the millennium would be this period of a thousand years of peace where Jesus would come back to earth. He would reign omnipotent. Everyone would be Mormon. And it would be great because everyone would be righteous. Everybody would be following the same true religion. And we would all be super happy and not drinking Diet Coke or Coke at all because it's got caffeine. So it'd be great. It'd be super fun. So my mom is primed with this, right? She sort of believes that eventually polygamy is probably going to come back because we'll live polygamy in the millennium. We'll live polygamy in heaven. It's an eternal law. In fact, the current, even though the LDS church doesn't live polygamy in this life, they're totally fine with polygamy in the next life. The current prophet, Russell M. Nelson, he's sealed to two women meaning that his first wife died and then he got sealed to another woman, which means, which is fine, right? <laughs> it's fine to marry someone after your wife dies. I don't want to be construed as saying that that's, that's a bad thing, but it's a little hypocritical in my view to claim that you're not, that you don't practice polygamy when you're sealed to two women and in heaven for most of, if, if earth life is teeny tiny and heaven is for eternity and you're an eternal polygamist, you're a polygamist. Like that's just the way that, that's just the way that it works. You're a polygamist, buddy. And, and so there's this kind of this expectation in Mormonism in the early eighties. And even today where they, they sort of view that even if we're not living polygamy now, it is an eternal law and we will probably live it in heaven. So my mom's sort of primed for this. She's 19. She meets my dad. My dad's very charming. He sweeps her off her feet. They fall madly in love. And then he tells her about, introduces her to polygamy. And he tells her that that's something that's been sponsored by the LDS church, that it's okay, that uh, it's sort of this secret inner ring where they only the most righteous people get to practice this, this super secret uh, polygamy thing. 
and uh, she falls for it. She decides to marry him. She does it secretly. Her parents don't know it. Well, she secretly marries him polygamous style, but then publicly, my dad and my mom get married in the LDS temple. So publicly, they're representing themselves as, as LDS, but then they have this secret marriage with the AUB, and that's where my dad also marries my, my other mom, his fiance, who'd, who'd been there before. So they have this secret polygamous marriage and then this public, this public monogamous marriage. And their plan was to like sort of slowly slide out of the LDS church, as it's been told to me, which not a great plan. What can you do? That is not what happens. Because eventually what happens is that my, my grandparents, my, my, my maternal grandparents, my grandparents on my, my mom's parents, they find out about this. They find out that, that my dad and my mom have joined the AUB that they've been uh, secretly married in the AUB, that my dad has another wife, and that they've been lied to, that they've been deceived, that my dad has been lying to them. And they lose their shit. They are very angry that, because it feels like an assault on the, the thing that they hold the most sacred, right? That getting married in the, in, the, in the temple in Mormonism is a really important step. It's a really big deal. And so when they when they... When they get that, when they find that out, they are, they are livid and they go on a warpath and they make sure that my dad is excommunicated from the LDS church, that my mom is, that my other mom is, and that all of my dad's family who had joined the LDS, who had joined polygamy are all excommunicated. And it goes, I recently learned that it, it's, it goes all the way to the first presidency, like the first presidency, which is the prophet and his counselors, the people leading the LDS church are aware of this happening and that they are, that they basically cancel the, the ceiling that my dad and my mom had done in the Logan temple. So it's a big deal, right? It, 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 it's this huge crack in our family. It's this huge, just division. My mom's parents are pissed. My dad's parents are pissed. And it's this huge rift. And then right in smack dab into that rift, I'm born. Ta-da, here I come. I come come crashing into the world in 1989, born right into the middle of this rift, stuck in, in this conflict between two versions of the Mormon cult. Which one of these cults is the right cult? And that's where I'm born. I'm born into that. And my parents moved back to Wyoming, which is where my dad is from. My dad had a family ranch that he grew up on. And that becomes our little family compound. We are, my dad moves on there. A couple of other family members move on there. We're living in little trailers and they just keep popping out kids. So my, my dad and my mom and my other mom, they have, I, I'm my mom's first. My other mom had two kids, two kids before me. Two years later, they both have kids again. Two years later, they both have kids again. I ultimately end up having 15 siblings and they're, and they're all pretty tight. By the time I'm nine, there are like 10 kids under the age of nine. And because we are polygamous at this point, because we've essentially removed ourselves from society, we are uh, undocumented. We're kind of like internal immigrants. Like we're not, we don't have documentation. We don't attend school. We're sort of outside of the purview of normal society. We're out living on this little ranch five miles outside of a teeny town in Wyoming. And we're doing that because we believe, my parents believe, that the end times are imminent, that Jesus is coming back like immediately 
and that they need to be separated from this wicked society that's out there that is that is dedicated to corrupting humans and making sure that they live wicked lives so that they don't get to go back to live with with Jesus Christ, right? They're, they're bent on on destruction. They have a very negative view of the world. The world is wicked. The world is dangerous, and we need to be we need to protect our children from it. And that means that we don't have a lot of contact with people outside. I think I was probably I was probably 18 or 19 before I had a friend who was not a member of the polygamous sect that I was a part of. And then it was only because I went to getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but even then it was only because I went to college in a predominantly LDS town. And so it wasn't like I met people and had friends who were even outside of Mormonism at that point. That was just the first time I had LDS friends. And so we're really isolated. We're really separated from society. And, and because of that, there was a lot of abuse that then happened because my family believed that they needed to keep that ranch safe, that they needed to keep that ranch isolated from the wicked influences of the world, and that they needed to have as much land as possible so that when the calamities happened in the last days, that the righteous saints had a place to flee to. They, they viewed the ranch as a place of refuge. In fact, the prophet of the AUB at the time, his name was Owen Allred. He came up to Wyoming and met with my grandpa, met with my dad, and he looked at the ranch and he basically called them. He told them, hey, you need to keep this place safe. You need to keep this place prepared so that when the destructions of the last days happen and Salt Lake is like running with blood, that all of the polygamists who are down there, they have a place to flee to, to be safe during the, during the calamities of the last days. And my parents and my grandparents take that very seriously, that that's what they're going to do. But unfortunately, ranches don't pay well. And they, and especially when you're trying to acquire a lot of land. And so they start a bakery on the, on the ranch. They call it country bakery because it's out in the country. And the idea is that that's going to be used to, to kind of fund the ranch. And at first, when they first start it, they hire people from the community. They hire teenagers or members of the, the outside community to come and work on it. But then they eventually don't like that. They don't like that because they're, those people are coming in and they're wearing like tank tops and they're listening to you know, evil music. They're bringing the satanic and corrupt influences of the wicked world into our very pristine, very sacred ranch and corrupting us. And so they decide, nope, no more of that. We're not going to hire anyone from the outside anymore. But who are we going to get to, to run this bakery for us? Who can, we, who can we hire? Who can do it then? And they look around and they happen to have a, a huge crop of a whole bunch of kids who aren't going to school. We're being homeschooled, which basically is like getting handed books and we read them sometimes. And maybe we, maybe we have some worksheets or maybe we're just outside playing all the time. But we have, there's all this huge crop of, of kids who are basically available now to do cheap labor. And so I start working in the bakery when I was uh, eight years old. And I worked there for 10 years until I'm 18. And I was paid 25 cents an hour, which is not great. Although I'm pretty excited to, to announce that I was able eventually to work my way up to a dollar an hour. So I, I eventually got paid. I got a 400% raise, which was rad. <laughs> um, and that, and that's, that's some pretty intense work, right? We're, we're doing that when I'm, by the time I'm 14, I'm working 14, 16 hour days. It's dangerous work. There are a lot of injuries in the bakery. We're working with industrialized machinery. We're work, working with bread slicers. At one point I get my finger stuck in the slicer and it's, it's cut up pretty badly. 
but we don't go to the hospital because we're concerned, right? Hospitals are dangerous. Hospitals, if you go to a hospital, there might be a report, right? They might report you to the Child Protective Services and they might come and take you away. There's a lot of fear in my family growing up about being, about having our child, the, the children being taken away from their, their family. And, and so we're, 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 we live in kind of isolation. I was taught to not tell people that I was polygamous, to just live, to keep it under wraps and to, to not draw attention to ourselves. Because if we did, then the wicked government would come and take us away. And that continues until I'm about 18. And when I'm 18, my family decides that it's time for me to go to college. And that's not because um, going to college is something that most polygamous kids do. It's just because they believe that they need a lawyer in their family because they, they, they have this view that they need to uh, protect the, they need to protect the, the, the broader AUB community and themselves from the encroaches of the evil government as we're getting further and further into the apocalypse. And so they're like, they look at me, like, this one reads, <laughs> this one, this one is, is intelligent. Let's send them to college. And so they send me off to a, a small liberal arts school in Southern Utah. And this is my first real foray into the wicked world. And they prepare me, right? They, I'm going out there like, look, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be exposed to a lot of things that are going to seem like they are really righteous, like they maybe are nice, maybe they're comfortable, but don't believe it. It's Satan trying to deceive you. Remember what you were taught. And then they send me down to, to school. And I'm at school for a couple of years. And it's this real big awakening process for me, because like I said, I was, I was, my world was so tiny. And as I go to school, I'm reading these, these great classical texts. I'm reading Plato. I'm reading Socrates. I'm reading Les Mis. I'm reading all of these fantastic mind-opening books. I'm interacting with people who are different from me, meaning that they're LDS because <laughs> it's in Southern Utah. And, and I, and eventually I get an opportunity to, to go to Uganda, to Africa for a, a mission trip for a summer where we're teaching classes there. And we'll get into all this a lot during the podcast a lot, but one of the big, one of the big challenges for me personally in that worldview was the racism, because I was taught that black skin was a curse, right? That basically we'd all lived in something called the pre-existence before we came to earth and that some of us were worthy in that time and some of us were unworthy. And the unworthy ones, they were given black skin, they were cursed on earth, and they, were, they are less than. They are, you are not supposed to mingle with them. You are not supposed to have, you're not supposed to have children with them. It's like white supremacy at its finest. And, but obviously I didn't have the language for that as a, <laughs> as a polygamous child. They, they didn't have courses in white supremacy. I recognize that's what it was now. And that had always... That had always just, just felt so gross to me. Like I remember, I remember being a very young boy, probably seven or eight, and hearing my dad explain those beliefs to someone who didn't hold them and feeling just so deeply ashamed that I believed that because it felt, it felt so wrong and it felt so gross. And it felt, I was like, oh, please, dad, don't. It's bad enough that we believe that. Please don't tell people that we believe that. And I was like eight when that happened. I was like seven or eight. And so I go to Uganda and I'm, and then suddenly I'm the minority, right? I'm the one white dude in hundreds of miles and my heart just cracks open. And I, I look at all of these, these beautiful humans and I'm like, 
oh my God, these people are no different than me. They're just humans. They're just, it's just me. And I start to feel this really, this really strong sense of cognitive dissonance because I have all of this, I have generations of programming in my entire childhood of telling me what is true. And then I have these feelings that I'm feeling in my body and I don't really know what to do with it. So I come home and for about a year, I'm in this space of really not knowing what to, what to really do. And then I eventually find a, a path that feels, that feels safe, that I, that I maybe can navigate. And I'm like, I think I'm going to join the LDS church because the LDS church has moved on from some of this racist doctrine. They allow their, they, in 1979, if you've, if you've watched the Book of Mormon musical, in 1979, God changed his mind about black people. What that's referring to is that in 1979, way too late for a prophetic organization. I'm glad they, they, they did it. In 1979, the LDS church reversed their policy of banning African-Americans from having the priesthood. So up until then, they were like, if you're black, you cannot have the priesthood. You cannot participate in the temple. And after 1979, they were like, fine, you can. And so I joined the LDS church because it feels like a, it feels like a safe way for me to let go of some of these problematic parts of my belief system. I don't have to be racist anymore. I don't have to do the polygamy thing anymore. I can just be, I can sort of be the, the, the kind, compassionate person that I feel like I have always been on the inside. And, and a, a couple of years after, and I, I joined the LDS church, I get married, I have some kids. And after a couple of years in the LDS church, I, I, I begin to realize that, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about my deconstruction, pro, deconstruction process in future episodes, but to make a long story short, essentially I realized that the same things that weren't true in the polygamous version are also not true in the LDS version. I learn a lot about the, some of the things I talked about earlier. I didn't know that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from a seer stone. I wish that South Park would have been allowed on the compound, but it wasn't. <laughs> and I didn't know that he lied about translating the Book of Abraham. That's another thing we can get into in a future episode. I didn't know a lot of the things. There, there are many things that are historically documented that just demonstrate that Mormonism is objectively false. Like we, we, we know certain things. That's the, the problem of starting a religion when there's photographs and people are taking, like writing things down <laughs> is that you can, you can fact check it. And when you fact check Mormonism, the facts don't check out. And um, when I'm about 25, 26, I decide to leave the LDS church. And at that moment, it was that, that was like a, that was like my own personal apocalypse because it felt like the entire sky cracked open and I was like, I was living in an egg and then the whole sky cracked open and I was like, oh my God, I have no idea what is true. I have no idea. I do not know. I do not know where on earth I am. I don't know when I am. I don't know the entire construct, the entire mental construct that I use to orient myself in, on this planet doesn't work. It's, it's false. It was a lie. Now what? Now what do I do? And I've always been a really curious person. I've always been, I, I started reading when I was very young and I read everything that I could get my hands on. One of the things that I'm most grateful to my mom about 
is that she, sometimes against the wishes of my dad, she would take me to the library and let me check out any books that I wanted to. I was really fascinated by dinosaurs as a kid. And so I, I'd always been sort of feeding my mind information. I've always been trying to learn more. And so that's what I did. I was like, okay, well, if I don't know, if I don't know, then I guess I have to learn. And so I started learning. I started reading and taking courses in history. I started taking courses in science. I learned as much as I, over about three or four years, I just threw myself into learning everything that I could about everything that I could. And as I did that, so I'm sort of feeding my mind. The other thing that's coming up is that I'm also start, starting to realize that my childhood was incredibly abusive and that I'm actually dealing with a lot of complex PTSD, that I have a lot of trauma locked up in my body. And so I find myself a really excellent trauma therapist. I start going to therapy regularly and I start to sort of unpack and let my body process what had happened to me. That's when I learned uh, that I had been labor trafficked. Because again, labor trafficking, that's not like there wasn't a course on the compound about what labor trafficking is. But I learn what the definition of that is. Actually, as I'm teaching, for, for a while I taught high school, which is hilarious to me because I, I never went to high school. But for a while I'm teaching high school and, and one of the certifications that I had to take, I had to take a course to learn how to recognize human trafficking. And as I took that course and it defined labor trafficking, I was like, oh, that's what happened to me. I was labor trafficked. And I'm having all of these kinds of realizations of all of the different ways that this childhood that I thought was normal wasn't. And these experiences that I thought were fine weren't. I, I remember telling, I would tell stories I've always been like, I love telling stories. I love trying to make people laugh. I've always been, I've always been that way. And so I would tell stories to friends about growing up that I thought were funny. And then I'd see the look on their faces and it was horrified. And I was like, oh, I guess that's not funny. I guess that's traumatic. So I'm doing all of this, right? I'm, I'm in all of this space. I'm learning a lot. I'm healing a lot. And I'm also starting to have to rebuild my life because I'm realizing that a lot of the world that I'd built for myself had been built under false pretenses, right? I'd built the life that Mormonism had said would make me happy and it hadn't made me happy. So I had to change some things. I had to change my job. I had to end my, my marriage and, and move on from that relationship. And I had to reinvent myself. I had to rediscover who I was. And as I did that, I realized that fundamentally I, I'm a comedian. I'm someone who wants to make people laugh. I want to take the hard, tragic, scary, awful things of life. And I want to find ways to use humor to transcend and, and heal that. So I start doing stand-up comedy. I start, I start going to open mics and I'm pretty good at it. And I start to, I start to headline. I'm pretty good at that. And, and then I end up, end up with this podcast. And here we are trying to, trying to be funny about something pretty awful. But all of this is to say, so that's the, the big arc of the story, but there are a couple of parts that I want to just emphasize real quick. Cause again, I'm, I'm making the case that I'm a prophet and that I didn't really want to be. That was not my intention. I'm, I'm an accidental prophet. I didn't, it happened to me on accident. And here's the reason why. When I was a member of the AUB, we got, I got something called a patriarchal blessing, 
which is essentially like a little personal prophecy, right? This old dude comes, he lays his hands on your head and he's like, hey, this is what God, this is your purpose in life that God wants you to, to live. And he gives, me my, he gives me my blessing and he tells me that my purpose, that this is when I'm still a member of the AUB, that my purpose is to take, is to basically reunite all of the Mormon sects into one, right? That my purpose is to take the LDS church and these polygamous groups and bring and unite them together in the last days. And when I left the LDS church, I was like, fuck all that shit, <laughs> right? Not that. But what I've realized is that I've essentially done because I've united all of the different parts of Mormonism under the banner of bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And because it's bullshit, we need to acknowledge that as a collective community because it's bullshit that's been perpetrated on a community of humans for hundreds of years. And so it's bullshit that actually has power, right? The LDS church, like I said, is an incredibly powerful organization. It has hundreds of billions of dollars. And it uses that money, not really for the betterment of society. We're in the, in the depths of winter right now in Utah. We just had a massive snowstorm. There are hundreds of homeless people freezing on the streets in Salt Lake City. And meanwhile, the LDS church is spending, just bought a $174 million industrial complex in Florida, which seems like a weird thing for someone who purports to be the followers of Jesus to do. Because I don't know about you guys, but my understanding of Jesus is that, is that that dude wasn't all about buying property. He was about helping the poor. So that's one line of evidence. But then this is the final kicker for me. This is when I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into this. After I left the LDS church, after I deconstructed, after I healed, I realized that there were tons of parts of, the, of, the, of life that I hadn't ever experienced that I, and I wanted to. That in many ways, I was sort of, when you grow up in really high demand and, and structured environments where you're not able to experiment and kind of express your life force the way that you naturally want to, you get a little bit stunted. And so I felt really stunted. I felt like I wasn't quite able to, to I hadn't ever been able to develop myself because I hadn't been able to really do anything. I'd always been following the rules instead of expressing myself and then seeing, fuck around and find out, right? If you fuck around and find out, you find out who you are. And that's the whole point of fucking around and find out. And I'd never fucked around. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to fuck around. I'm going to go out and I'm going to intentionally fuck around. I'm going to do all of the things that they told me I shouldn't do. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to show my elbows. Here they are. Check it out, you guys. These are my porn elbows. Don't get too turned on. They're pretty crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to date around. I'm going to do weird. I'm going to try kinky sex things. I'm going to try alcohol. I'm going to watch movies that I wasn't supposed to watch. And what I found as I started doing that is that I, I love this wicked world. You guys, there is so much beauty and majesty and creativity and just amazing things that you all created while I was stuck on a compound. <laughs> and I get to experience them for the first time now in my 30s, just as, a, as an example, right? Like music was banned. We, we were not supposed to listen to anything other than hymns and Motab. And that means that there are tons of, tons of bands, tons of classic, amazing music that I've never heard. I just listened to Nirvana 
for the first time six months ago. And it blew my mind. I literally found out, I literally heard my first Nirvana song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, fell in love with Kurt Cobain, and then learned that he had killed himself all within a five-minute period. So there's tons of those things that I've never done. I get to experience all of those now as an adult for the first time, and it's magical. I love it. So there's so much in that world that I think is, is magical. And uh, so I've been really intentional about going and trying to find cool things that I can do to, to have those kinds of experiences. And I heard, and then I heard last year, two years ago, cause now it's 2024. So in 2022, I heard about something called Burning Man. And I was like, you know what? As I heard about that, it's a, if you don't know, Burning Man is a giant festival out in the Nevada desert. They build a huge wooden idol of a man. They party around that thing for a week and then they burn it down. It's crazy. And I heard about that and I was like, you know what? That that sounds pretty wicked. <laughs> that sounds like where all the wicked people are, are and I'm going to go there and I'm going to try to do all the wicked things. And so I did. I, I went out to Burning Man. I, and I, when I first landed, I, I arrived and I got to the camp where the people with, with I, I was staying with and I, I basically like parked and then I just started walking out. I was like, I'm going to go walk out and explore. And I went into this whirlwind of insane, just crazy, magical human creativity. And I wandered back into camp 36 hours later. And I was like, whoa, you guys, what just happened? And it was, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life because it was all of this human creativity just piled into this one place and, and given full freedom to express however it wanted to. And coming from a background where my human freedom, my human life force was told, don't express, constrain yourself, be, you have to be this cookie cutter version of who you are. That was this, it was a life-changing experience. And part of the, part of the Burning Man culture is this idea of gifting. It's this idea that we want to, that, that every human has a unique gift, that something to offer, and that we're here to give that gift to people. And it's really important to give gifts. And I went to Burning Man. I wasn't quite sure what my gift was, but I really wanted, I really wanted to give something. So I'm there, I'm going around having all of these crazy, awesome, hilarious experiences. And on the last, towards, towards the end of the, of the experience, because the, the way it's structured is that there's a whole week. And at the end of the week on, on Friday night, they burn down the man. And then on Saturday night, they burn down what's called the temple. And the man is this big wild party. And then the temple is a place where people have been leaving offerings of, of, to people who've, who've passed on. It's sort of this really sacred place. And which to me was really magical because when I left Mormonism, I thought that I had to leave behind belief. I thought that I had to leave behind spirituality and, and a connection to the divine. And what I found at Burning Man, and then also just from my, my own experiences since then, is that human belief is far older and far more powerful than Mormonism, than even Christianity, than organized religion at all. Like humans have been believing in things for hundreds of thousands of years. We've been believing in things. And I was able to tap into that. And what I, what I as, as we're getting towards the end of the week, the man burns down and I decide that I want to have an experience where I want to stay in the same spot. I want to orient myself to the sun. 
and I feel like I'm the, I'm sitting next to the ashes of the man, and I'm like, I'm just going to park it right here. So I, I have a little, I have a little blanket, spread it out, and I make myself like a little temple right next to the right next to the ashes of the man. A very Mormon thing to do. And I sit down and I have these cards. I have this deck of archetype cards, it's like tarot cards, but but a little bit different. And I've been using them for a couple of years. They were my favorite things. And I was like, I'm going to give these away. I'm going to give these away to people. And so I'm sitting there. I'm butt ass naked. <laughs> I'm covered in dirt, like a like an Old Testament prophet, right? Just parked down next to the ashes of this man. And it's the middle of the night. It's probably four o'clock in the morning. And the ashes are, are it's still burning, right? It's still burning. And I'm sitting there and the sun starts to come up in the distance. And as I see the sun rising and I'm, and it's, it's, and then I look over and the, the ashes are dying. I realize that I have sort of this really profound experience of realizing, experiencing where we are on this planet, right? We are at midway between the creation of the sun and the ashes of our future, right? Everything goes to ash. Everything burns, right? Our entire, our sun, it billions of years into the future will burn out and this entire planet will burn, but we're not, we haven't burned yet. And I realize this is all sort of jumbling in my brain with what I was taught about the apocalypse. And I realize that apocalypses are just part of the cycles of history. That what really happens is that we build things and then they break down and then we rebuild them and then they break down. We build and they burn. We build and they burn. And that that is part, that beat is part of the human experience, that we're builders and we're burners. And that right now in our society, we're at a burning time. Our society is burning down around us. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because there was a lot in our society that needed to burn down. If you think about, if you just look at American culture, if you look at American history and you think about the way that we have treated indigenous people, the way that we have treated people of color, the way that we've treated the descendants of slaves, the way that we treated slaves, the way that we treated women, the way that we treated gays, the way that we've treated anyone who was different, the way that we've treated poor white men. The way that we've treated humans in our culture, we haven't done a great job. We've hurt them. We haven't built a society that is built to make people happy. We've built a society that is designed to make some people a lot of money. And that needs to burn down. It's actually okay. So it's scary. The apocalypse is scary for sure. It's a big deal. It's, it's destabilizing. We don't quite know what's going to happen. But what I saw in the ashes of the man at Burning Man and the rising of the sun is that this never-ending cycle just keeps moving. We are always going to be in it. We are always burning down the old and building the new. And I feel like right now, we have an incredible opportunity to build something new that is more human, that's more caring, that's designed to help everyone. And that's what I'm here to prophesy. The next morning, the sun comes up. I'm giving out cards. I'm sit, I sit there all day, right? From the sun, from sunrise to sunset, I'm sitting in the same spot. People come to me. I have 150 conversations with all of these amazing people. I give every one of them one of my cards. At the end of the day, I'm sitting there. I'm caked in dirt. 
I have, I have this, this actually, I'm only wearing this hat. <laughs> I'm caked in dirt. I'm just covered. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just like, I'm like, I look, I imagine I look like a, an old Testament prophet sitting outside of the, the, of the temple, just covered in dirt. And a guy that I was camping with, he rolls up, he sees me there and he, he names me. And names are an important part of Burning Man. Names are actually an important part of Mormonism too, because part of the Mormon culture is that you go to the temple and you receive a new name. And that new name is supposed to be a name of power. It's supposed to be a name that gives you, tells you something. It's really, it's hyped up. But in Mormonism, they've turned that into sort of a factory thing. Everybody who goes to the temple gets the same name on the same day. There's not a lot of power in it. Uh, I got named Sam when I went through the temple. I'm not supposed to tell you that because I made a promise that I wouldn't, but that it, there it is. Now, any of you can resurrect me. My temple name is Sam. That didn't mean a lot to me. It wasn't powerful. But Burning Man, you also get names. But the idea at Burning Man is that you can't give yourself a name. The playa has to give it to you. The, the, the experience has to give it to you. Someone else has to give it to you. And that it's an insight into who you are and what you have to give. And so as I'm sitting there, caked in dirt, giving out uh, fucking cards to people, this guy that I'm camping with, he cruises up and he takes one look at me and he just throws up his arms in the air and he just screams, it's the apocalypse prophet. And I was like, that's my name. There I am. Because I am. I'm the prophet of the apocalypse. We're here. We are in the apocalypse, y'all. It is here. And it is here in, in massive form. Because not only are we dealing with, not only are we dealing with an apocalypse on the scale of American society, but we are dealing with a climate apocalypse that is catastrophic. And it's to the point where we, it is on, we, there's no way that we can ignore it. I've been reading this really fantastic book recently called called The Age of Resilience. And I just want to share just a couple. We'll talk a lot more about the apocalypse. We'll talk a lot more about how I think about the apocalypse in, a, in next week's episode. I really want to get into and define, defining an apocalypse for you so that we can understand what we're thinking about. But just as a couple, of, a couple of things to throw out so you can understand the severity of where we're at, right? This from The Age of Resilience. One third of topsoil has eroded in the last 150 years. And topsoil takes hundreds of years to form. That's how we feed ourselves. We maybe only have 50 years left. We are in an age of mass extinction. It's predicted that we will lose 50% of species in the next 50 years. 50% of the oxygen that we breathe on this earth comes from phytoplankton which are at massive risk right now because of the rising temperatures of the ocean. The oceans are rising. It's predicted, likely, that the oceans will rise at least 10 to 20 feet over the next 50 years. And if that happens, the majority of all human life is on the shores of the oceans, you guys. So those oceans rise, we are in for some catastrophic change. And it's already started, right? You remember what happened at, at Maui, Really, or, or in, in the middle of last year, that's, that stuff is already happening. And now I think if we accept that, if we recognize that we are in an apocalyptic time and not just society, so socially apocalyptic, but globally apocalyptic, we have some choices that we can make. We have to acknowledge number one, that we are a global community, that we are a global community of humans and that we have the power to take care of everyone. We have the wealth, 
we have the resources, we have the intelligence to navigate this crisis in a way that takes care of all of the humans that are here. All of these beautiful, wonderful, intelligence, crazy, silly, wild humans. All of those people that I was told for, my, for most of my life that they were wicked and that, the, that God was coming to destroy them. I reject them. God is not coming to destroy us. God, whatever God is, wants us to live, wants us to save ourselves. And if we come together as a community, we can do that. And so this podcast is about a couple of things. It's about exploring what the apocalypse means, what the narratives that I have. I want to, I want to interview a lot of different people and I want to understand your perspectives about what the apocalypse means to you, what this apocalypse that we're in right now, what you've learned from it, the challenges that you've been facing, the challenges we've been facing, the opportunities that we have. I want to explore with different artists and different creators and different experts in all different kinds of walks of life. I want to really have a conversation about, okay, if we are in the apocalypse right now, what should we be doing? How should we be navigating relationships? How should we be navigating finance? How should we be navigating art? How should we be navigating religion and government and politics? How do all of these different parts of society change? How should we navigate those, those areas knowing that we are in apocalyptic times, that the old world is breaking and dying, and that the new world is ready to re be reborn? That's what this podcast is about. And in the meantime, additionally, I also want you all to show me all the cool shit that I missed because I am, I am in love with this world. I'm in love with humanity. I'm in love with all of the crazy cool stuff that we made. And I don't know, I don't know what I don't know. And so I want to bring people on and I want to have conversations with them about the apocalypse, about how to prepare, about what we can do to make this world better. And then I also want you to share your most wonderful, beautiful, wicked things with me. What are the things about this world that you love, that you think I'll love? I want you to share those things with me. That's, that's my first episode. You guys, next week, next week, we're going to dive into the apocalypse. So next week, I want to talk a lot about, I'm going to define the apocalypse a little more carefully. I want to explore some historical cycles and really get into understanding when I'm talking about the apocalypse and I'm talking about what that means. Let's get a frame of reference for what that, that, what that looks like. And, and then we'll start bringing on guests the week after that. So thank you for uh, joining me on this journey. And I hope that together we can vibe this apocalypse.